0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. I'm here to share with you today, and I'm going to start in a, in a uh, place that you probably are not going to expect, with the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. So <laughs> we're on to sports today. So so what you... um. Some of you who might be a little older in the room do remember the Cold War. Anybody remember the Cold War? Some of you who don't. But basically the Cold War was the USSR, which was Russia and all of the countries it took over, threatening us, the USA, and us threatening them back. And we didn't have a war because it would have been nuclear weapons and we might not be here. But this, um, this Cold War tension brought about... Uh, lots of things, but in this particular time, the, the, the U.S., or the hockey, the Olympics, sorry, the 1980 Olympics, one of the things that had happened in the USSR is they had, they had a team. They had a team that was amazing. They had played together for many years, and they had won the four previous Olympic titles of gold. So 1964, 1968, 1972, and 1976, they had taken the gold. They were Some people called them a machine because they worked so well together. These players dominated in every hockey league they ever played in. I mean, every um, competition, there's more than just the, the Olympics. But every, ta- every time, they were unbeatable. And one commentator said at one point, it would take a miracle to beat them. In 1979, Russia's um, leader at the time, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure, um, my history is escaping me, he allowed his team to come to the U.S. and play against the NHL All-Stars, okay? The NHL All-Stars were the best professional hockey players, right? And they crushed them. The, the, the Russian team crushed the U.S., so that sets the stage for the 1980 US Olympics. And the um, coach, his name is Herb Brooks, he was a no-name, basically. I mean, nobody really knew who he was. Um, he comes along and says, yeah, I'm going to co- you know. They pick him to coach the team. And he takes 20 guys. And, and back in that time, we didn't send professionals. We sent amateurs. Okay, so a lot of these guys were college hockey players. Few of them might have had some background in some minor leagues, but none of them were professional. Their average age was 21. The Russians were like 30. Okay, so they had maturity, experience, and skill. And he, um, Herb Brooks, had seven months to take a bunch of 21-year-olds and make them into a team. He used unorthodox tactics for the US to bring them together and, and in the, so in the Olympics, when they started the games, they didn't face Russia right away, they faced other teams, and they kept winning. And after each game, a lot of times they will, uh, you know, reporters will sit and ask questions. And a lot of times you have your star players come out. And her Brooks would sit there and take questions. And the reporters would say, well, can we talk to your at uh, the time, the um, goalie was the captain. His name is Jimmy. And he said, can we talk to Jimmy? And they was like, nope. And, and so they'd ask questions. And then the next game, they win. They do it again. And one reporter at one point said, well, it's been said that maybe you just want all the spotlights. That's why you won't let us talk to your players. So the very next game that they won, instead of going before the uh, reporters, he sent his assistant coach. It's like, Fine. You don't have to hear from me, but you're not going to hear from my players. And the reason he did that was because he wanted his players to think as one, to be a team, to not have this person or that person, but to really come together as a team. And the game against Russia that the US played was not the final game. Now, it was already said that Russia was going to win. I mean, everybody thought, well, the USSR is unstoppable. And Herb Brooks comes into the locker room before this game. This is the iconic game. And he talks to his players. Now, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a rah-rah speech right before your game, right? But this is the, for Herb Brooks, it would be close to the end of what he would have an opportunity to pour into these players because after the Olympics, they would all go their own way and he would no longer be their coach. So these are not his very final words, but close to it. And it could have been, if they had lost that night, those were his final words to his players. And he says to them, you were born, and he's talking about the team, and you grew up in these seven months, and you did this, and he spoke like a father would speak to his kids, encouraging them. And saying, you can, as a team, beat this unbeatable team. We know the odds, that doesn't matter. You have an opportunity to win. And they did. They beat Russia, and it was, it was a 4-3 game. It was back and forth, it was very exciting. Um, or you could watch the Disney movie to see it, and it's very exciting too. Um, and then they went on and had to uh, play one more team. They played Finland, and they ended up winning the gold. And I, I love what happened in the, um, the, the ceremony where they all, they had all just received a medal. So each player comes up, they're awarded a gold medal. But on the podium, we've all seen the podium, right? You get gold here, you get silver, you get bronze. You have one person, your team captain, this is Jimmy, and this is what happened. the rest of the team of course there they are captain michael rizzione getting his guys up there have you ever heard a national anthem sung by so many people and so loudly in recent years number one you bet officially in the world of ice hockey the united states amateurs the college kids are the best interesting about that. Yeah, you could clap. That was cool. But I don't know if you could understand the reporters. He's like, wait a second. What is he doing? What what is he doing? He's calling the team together to stand on the podium because he knew it wasn't just him. It was a team. That team came together, and they did a miracle. right? They beat the unbeatable. They beat the machine. And there's lots of other implications of that, but we're talking about Philippians. So, Kathy, what are you talking about? (laughs) The book of Philippians, you know, we learned the last couple of weeks, Paul is sitting in prison, and he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. And he writes this letter to the Philippian church, and it could be his very last. He wants them to know things. I wanna coach you, I wanna tell you what's important, I want you to learn some things. And he pens the letter to the Philippians. He, this, this last letter has such amazing things in it, and I have such a little time to tell you about it. In, in chapter uh, two, verse one, it starts with, therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, He's asking these rhetorical questions. You're united with Christ. Is that encouraging? Are you encouraged by that? In perakleses, or I mean, I'm sorry. In the the original, that word encouragement is perakleses, which means earnest supplication. More than soothing sympathy, it means strengthening, helping, make strong, and in Latin, it becomes the word brave. You're united with Christ. Are you brave? Does it give you a sense of bravery? It should. Are you comforted by the love that God has for you? That comfort, does it bring you relief? it's, It's that idea of safety. Do you feel safe in God's love? think about safety, I think about being, you know, in a storm when you're at, you know, you're driving through a storm and it's hard. And then when you get home, you feel safe. That's what God's love should do for you. If you have any common sharing in the spirit, spirit with effect, um, in any tenderness or compassion, he's being rhetorical about the benefits of being a Christian, not Christianity, but the benefits that you and I have, because we're Christians. And he goes on and he says, then make my joy complete. Can you hear the dad? Can you hear the coach? I wanna be excited for you. By being what? Like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This is a call to unity. It is not a call to uniformity. You know, Herb Brooks talked about his players. He said very different backgrounds, and they each had a part to play. They weren't all goalies. They weren't all forwards. They each had a part to play. We have a part to play. But that unity that we have as a church, that we should be striving together, not leaving one another behind how do we be unified? He goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's talking about a mindset. As a Christian, selfish ambition is the antithesis of what you need. We shouldn't be looking out for ourself. We shouldn't be self-absorbed. It's all about me. Who finds this world a little self-absorbed, right? Have you seen, I don't know, anything on TV, media, Facebook, Instagram? Everything's about me. Don't live for yourself. This is what he's saying. Don't live for yourself with selfish ambition. And vain conceit, conceited, well, we know what conceited is, right? We think we're better than everybody else. But vanity is, uh, I I was looking um, at Ecclesiastes, And the word vanity actually means like uh, smoke, or enigma, or it's something that you can't catch. Vanity is like trying to catch the wind, or to catch smoke. It's meaningless. Chasing after the things of this life, of this world, are meaningless. That's vain conceit, thinking yourself better, chasing after, I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to get the most money. I'm going to chase after cars and houses and whatever. It's meaningless, Ecclesiastes tells us. But then he says, what you should do in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you looking to the interest of others. This is not a call to be self-deprecating. Oh, I don't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay, that is not what Paul is saying, okay? But he's saying don't be self-absorbed. Stop thinking about you all the time. Think about others. C.S. Lewis puts it so well. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I'm going to say that again. Humility is not thinking of of less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I'm still worth something. I was bought with a price. Jesus died for me, so I'm worth something. But I shouldn't be thinking about me all the time. I should be thinking about others. And then that section right there, those four verses, I could teach a whole sermon. But I have to transition to the next section, which I could teach a whole sermon. And then he goes on in Philippians 2, 5, and he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So think like Jesus thought. And what he inserts here is very interesting. In some Bibles, you will see that it actually kind of breaks it over into like a section. And that's because it was a poem. And the the kind of poem it was, oh, sorry, I'm behind. The kind of poem it was is called a chiasm. And a chiasm is a me- medical term, which I'm not going to explain. Maybe you could ask our nurses in the room. But um, a chiasm, what we're talking about is a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. So a famous one in our, our day, or in our country would be ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Okay, so ask not what you can do for your country. Country is A, B, and then ask what you can do for your country is B, A. Your country are the A's, and the, what you can do are the B's. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain it better by saying this. A chiasm in the Bible would be whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. The exaltations are in the reverse order uh lots of books in the bible are written this way or lots of places in the bible have chiasms poetry or um yeah poetry and so what you see here on the this is noah it starts with noah and his sons as a and all the way at the bottom you see a noah and his sons and then each of them are couplets that follow the same pattern But the most important thing in this poem is X, which is God remembers Noah, okay? So that's how a a chiasm works, is it's similar themes working together, the center is the most important. And then we come to our passage here. And, uh, yes, our passage here. And so what we have is, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see Jesus is with God, and at the end, he's exalted in the same place. The second set, we see that he comes down here to earth, And therefore, God exalts him. He goes back up, right? And the most important thing is that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is the the point that's being driven home. This poem became a hymn. Most many authors think that, or many um, historians think that this became a hymn that was widely sung in the early church because it tells what they are holding true, right? Holding fast to be true. So let's take it piece by piece. In Philippians, uh, so 2.6, it says, God who being in the very nature of God, that word nature of God is sometimes form of God. The original word is called morphe, which implies that this is not like something on the outside. It is, he is internal, external, everything about him, is God. Jesus is God. Not like God. Not an offshoot of God, but he is God. And in in another place, you'll, you'll see the word schema, which means has the appearance of. So he's not saying here that he has the appearance of God. He's saying he is God and he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's God. He doesn't get to be Thor and throw it around like it's candy, okay? Sorry, we just did the guardians. So anyway, Um, he's God, and he doesn't look at his power and his authority as anything that he has to cling to, that he has to boast about or has to show. So much so... <clears throat> that he, rather, he humbles himself. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He takes on humanity. Same word, morphe. He is God, and then he is man. He, doesn't, he isn't like man. He takes on physical body experiences physical stuff, just like we do. And then being found in the appearance of man, that word appearance is schema, looks like man, because if he's God and if he's man, he could look like whatever, you know, he could look like God and be walking around among us, right? But he wants to look like us, relate to us. But he also experiences everything that we experience. You know, um, when it says he... uh, made himself nothing, some versions say he emptied himself. And so then you're like, oh, did he, he he can't do God's stuff anymore? No, he set aside his rights and privileges of being God. He set them aside so that he could experience what we experience as humans. Okay, he could be on the same level with us. It's almost like, this is gonna be a bad analogy, but go with me here, Superman, right? Is he Clark Kent or is he Superman, right? When he's Clark Kent, he doesn't access his powers, right? Well, maybe, well, anyway, just go with me. You know, he's got to, like, he takes back on his superpower, you know, his, his Superman, you know, whatever. But he lays it aside when he's Clark Kent. Jesus laid aside his superpowers <laughs> to be human, to experience what we, we experience, And then the crux of, of the whole passage, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself to become obedient, to being a person, no longer glorious, born in obscurity to a poor family, obeying his parents, working as a carpenter, um, being tempted in the wilderness, serving His disciples, even washing their feet. Yes, he did miracles, but the whole time he was serving. Even death on a cross. Crucifixion was not only shameful, disgraceful. In Rome, it was only used for slaves and foreigners. The Romans, or I mean, the Jews looked at crucifixion as a curse. They believed that if you were a victim of the uh, crucifixion, that you were cut off from God. The Romans looked at humility as something shameful. Only glory and honor were attributes to be strived for. Jesus did what was counter-cultural for everyone. And Spurgeon says it like this, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him up in our adoring reverence. Blessed is his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level, becomes human, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet and is crucified. Therefore, he will be exalted to the highest place, and God gave him and gave him the name above every name. Christ doesn't crown himself. He lets the Father crown him, right? He goes to the lowest place to be brought up to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Later in Rome, allegiance will be declared and you should, if you're, if you're um, for Rome, you would declare that Caesar is Lord. Paul knows this and he says the opposite. He says, Jesus is Lord. He is the only name. He is the only one. In Isaiah 45, so think hundreds of years before this, Isaiah says this, I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth. I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. So what do we do with this? This humility that Jesus took on? Well, therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work for your salvation. He says work it out. That means walk it out. And the, the salvation here is not your, I'm, my ticket into heaven. This salvation is your changed life. Your past of sinning and separation from God is over. And now you have unity with Christ. So walk it out. Walk out your salvation. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for your life. I'm gonna say that again. He has a purpose for your life. And he puts in you the will to do it. And he gives you what you need to walk it out. Anybody know people in the world that don't have a purpose? You have a purpose. And don't think that once you're saved that the enemy just goes, oh, well, I guess I can't win with that one. You're going to be, there. he's going to try and trip you up. It's the way we have to keep walking out our salvation. Keep looking towards the prize. God puts this desire in you, and you can refuse it. And I, and I don't remember, somewhere in the service today, I'm sorry, but you can harden your heart to what God wants to do in you. You can refuse it. You still have a choice. But if you say, I wanna do what you want me to do, he'll put the desire in you. And then he says, so how do we do this? How do we have this humility and have this unity, walk out our salvation, do everything without complaining or arguing? everything. Go to work. Don't complain. Don't argue. Take care of your kids. Don't complain. Don't argue. Clean your house. Mow your yard. Go to church. Have fellowship with others. Now, sometimes we do need to complain. We complain to God. Moses did. Moses complained to God, and that's just fine. But do you know what you do when you complain? When you complain, you are preaching to those around you that you don't like the life God gave you. You complain about your job, and boy, am I guilty of that one. Complain about your job. You just said, God, I don't like. The job you gave me or the money that I make off of it. Now that's not saying that you can't get a promotion or look for a different job or any of that kind of thing. I'm, please don't misunderstand. But he's serious about complaining here. You know why? Because complaining brings disunity. Arguing breaks unity. Confrontation is a different story. There are often times we have to confront things. that's fine. But arguing. He's saying that, that that's the antithesis of unity. And why do we want that? So we can be blameless and pure. So we can be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Anybody see warped and crooked generation around us? <laughs> How are we any different when we argue and complain? Because we want to be, we want to shine like stars in the sky when we're among them. You know what light does? Light, like in a lighthouse, it warns of danger. A flashlight guides your way. Uh, parking lots have lights to keep you safe. Sometimes light spotlight issues, and Christmas lights make me happy. <laughs> light is good. Are you a light? Are you bringing light to the world around you? Are you? Warning people of danger? Are you spotlighting things in their life? Are you making them happy? What's Jesus doing in your life that you should light up and shine to those around you? And as you hold firmly to the word of life, Paul loves saying this. He says, hold fast to the word, hold fast. He says it in Thessalonians and Timothy and Corinthians, he says it here. And what he's talking about is holding fast has the, the idea of holding it in your possession and gazing on it. So you look at it and you hold it. Yes, we do that with Jesus, but he gives us a very practical thing we can use to do it with. It's called his word. Are you looking at his word? Are you gazing at it? It brings unity to, with you and him, and it brings unity with you and, and others. Sorry. And then he finishes in, in well, not finishes, my part's finished, <laughs> in 17 through 18. But even as I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, So you too should be glad and rejoice. What is he talking about? Well, the law in the Old Testament, you would pour a drink offering, often wine, onto a sacrifice. So there'd be a bull or a calf or whatever. And you'd either pour the wine onto that or you'd pour it onto the ground and you wouldn't see it anymore. Paul's not so sure that he's going to make it out of this prison and that he won't be executed and you won't see him anymore. And he says, he's given his life to the Lord. He's like, even if I'm executed, it's okay. It's okay. Rejoice with me, because I'm in Christ. And you rejoice because you're in Christ. Paul is telling us to be like Jesus, humble ourselves, serve others, that we can have unity like he and the Father and the Spirit have, like you and him can have, we can have it with one another. And then we can shine to the world around us. Amen.